Turn, if you would, into your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, if you're not there already. There are all kinds of medical tests that people take each year to see how they are doing physically. Don't raise your hands, but how many of these tests sound all too familiar to you? There's a lot. A blood pressure test. A colon cancer test, EKG test, skin cancer test, thyroid test, osteoporosis test, abdominal aortic aneurysm test. There's at least 10 different blood tests that they recommend happen every year of our lives. It seems like there's more tests than there are body parts. But, and the older you get, the more tests it seems they want to run on you. Uh, But I've I've heard from people that getting a routine test even discovered something that was very important that possibly saved their lives. So I'm not knocking the tests. Doctors tell you it's critical to have many of these tests every year for your health and your well-being. But the one test that I did not see listed was the treasure test. That's because it's not a medical test. It's, It's a spiritual test. And although no doctor is going to prescribe this test for you, it's a, it's a critical test for each of, each of us, young and old, to take each year. And this test is revealing and, and can be a great indicator of how healthy we are spiritually. And Matthew wrote a lot about treasure in his gospel. Tonight we're going to take a closer look at Matthew chapter 2 in particular, as well as some other passages in Matthew, to see what we should be treasuring at Christmas. So Matthew chapter 2, we're looking at a familiar passage, one that many families probably read each Christmas. We're starting in Matthew chapter 2 where we're introduced to these wise men that Dave did such a good job of describing for us that the Bible says so little but had such impact into this account and the story of Jesus. And as was mentioned, we're not told a lot about them. They were wise men, uh, sometimes translated magi from the east. Uh, we don't know where in the east. could have been Babylon, which uh, means they would have traveled at least 900 miles to get to uh, meet Jesus. would have taken anywhere from several months to more than a year to reach Bethlehem. We see in verses 1 and 2 of Matthew that the wise men came to Jerusalem and were asking where the baby-born king of the Jews was located. Verse 3 tells us that when King Herod heard about the wise men searching for the baby king, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Well, who was this King Herod? Well, we know uh, that he was raised as a Jew, nominally as a Jew. He was what's called Edomian, which is a Greek term for the Edomites, who were the enemies of Israel. He oversaw the rebuilding of the temple in in Jerusalem. He previously served as a governor in the region of Galilee and earned the favor with the the Romans by putting down a rebellion. He was given the title King of Judea by the Roman Senate in 40 B.C. and developed a reputation for being ruthless in his attempts to hold on to his power. In fact, in his paranoia, it's recorded that he killed three of his own sons because he he was fearful of them taking his throne. Herod treasured his power. And so it says in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all of Jerusalem with him. We're not told uh, why 
Jerusalem was troubled as well. It's understandable that King Herod would be, be troubled because his throne was in danger, but why was all Jerusalem troubled with him? Well, from what we know of King Herod's paranoia, it's probably because the people knew how ruthless he was, and if a rival king was born, what that could mean for, the, for them and how he might react to these news, this, this news. So now, whether it's on Christmas cards or, or plays or movies, uh, the wise men are often portrayed as pictured on the, on the screen as, as three guys, three guys usually on camels, each with a gift. But remember just how important uh, the wise men were. They were very important people. They were considered kingmakers because they, they had to train and approve future, future leaders. Uh, their teachings became known as the laws of the Medes and Persians. In fact, when we talk about, when we picture three guys on three camels coming and showing up at Bethlehem or Jerusalem, it was most likely, as Dave mentioned, a large entourage because they were important people. They would have had people to set up tents for them. They would have had chefs to cook for them. They would have people to take care of them. They probably had a small army just to guard them for this long journey. So this was probably a large caravan of people coming, on to, in, coming into Jerusalem. It's first mentioned in the book of, of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar has a, a dream, and he calls his wise men, which includes those who identified as magicians uh, in, most, in most English translations. And after he interprets the dream, Daniel's put in charge of those wise men. And it's quite possible that he taught them the scriptures and then including those prophecies of a future king that would save his people. And um, so wise men were a combination of astronomers who studied the science of the stars and astrologers who tried to assign mystic powers to what they saw in the stars. A kind of a a theological scientist who, who thought that these cosmic forces had an impact and influence on both life and history. So that when they looked up in the sky and they saw a star or saw various cosmic happenings, they studied them and made deductions. It's said that such wise men commonly associated the birth or the death of a leader with the appearance of stars. So is it possible that these wise men lived in the area of Babylon and were recipients of the teachings of Daniel that were handed down through time so that when they saw the star, they concluded that this was signifying the birth of the king of the Jews? Well, we're not told, so we don't know. But what we do know from verses 1 and 2, that they were wise men from the east who were led by a star to Jerusalem. Notice who the wise men came to worship. They didn't come to worship Herod. Verse 2 says they, says they came to worship him who was born king of the Jews. They traveled all that way, came, found him in a house. Mary and Joseph probably didn't have much money, so it was probably a very humble house. And verse 11 tells us that what happened when they got there, they fell down and worshipped him. No one else finds a child in a humble little house and falls down and worships him as king. But these wise men traveled all the way to Judea, and they know where the newborn king should be. He should be born in a palace. They go, so they go to the capital, the palace, to the palace where the newborn king should be born, But he wasn't there. Imagine this large entourage coming to Bethlehem. And upon arriving in Bethlehem, they come to this humble home and bow down to a child. 
Also note that verse 11 tells us they fell down and worshipped him. Not them. Not Mary. Not Joseph. Not the Holy Family. But the Christ child. Luke 1.46 tells us that Mary worshipped him too. And again in verse 11 we see that the wise men offered baby Jesus extravagant gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, we're not told how much they gave or why they gave these particular gifts. Again, if you look back in tradition and history, there's all sorts of things that you'll find. Some saw that gold was a great gift of value for a king. Frankincense was for priests, and myrrh uh, was for uh, burn for the gods, signifying that Jesus was king, priest, and God. Others say that myrrh was uh, for the anointing of dead bodies and so signified Christ's death on the cross. But in the end, we're not told. What we do know is that they were items of tremendous value. They could have been providentially symbolic, but most likely they were just gifts of great value. Great value that most likely helped sustain Mary and Joseph when they had to flee to go to Egypt. And again, being a humble couple with very little money, it would have helped them uh, make it through their time there. Interesting to note in verses 4 and 5 that Herod gets, gets all the chief priests and scribes together and asks where the Christ was to be born. And, and they knew where, not just one, but, but in verse 5 it tells us that they, the group of them, quoted Micah 5, 2 and told him right away that it was in Bethlehem. And so we see where Herod and all the scribes and the Pharisees dropped everything and went with the wise men to travel the short six-mile journey to Bethlehem to worship Jesus. No. We read nothing about this sort. The pagan wise men who traveled hundreds of miles for months or maybe as much as a year got as far as Jerusalem. But the scribes and Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees who knew the Old Testament inside and out, they were quick to tell Herod where he would be born, but no mention that they went along to worship the Christ. Were they not interested? Were they too busy? These were the ones that grew up in church. They knew the Bible trivia, they, but they had no interest in worshiping Jesus. But these pagan wise men who studied the stars, they, they sacrificed. They, they left their families. They left the comfort of their probably very luxurious surroundings. They risked their lives to travel for months across the desert, if not for years. They sacrificed their wealth. We don't know how wealthy they were, but they gave gifts, gifts of tremendous value and worth to Jesus. The Magi didn't let anything keep them from getting to and worshiping Jesus. And one of the great things uh, about going on mission trips is seeing people's thirst for God, his word, and his people. And this summer when we were in, in uh, Panama this past August, you know, we, we saw children who we were told would walk by themselves in the dark for miles just to get to VBS. And then they would walk miles again to get back. And they would do that every week just to get to church. And the saddest part is when we come back to the U.S. where people don't have to walk for miles. They drive in their temperature-controlled cars to arrive and sit in their temperature-controlled room not on wooden benches, but on comfortable pews. Maybe stop and get a coffee in the way or get a drink from the water fountain, the cooled water fountain. Use the nice bathrooms if necessary. Yet American Christians miss church for some of the saddest reasons. 
Uh, we couldn't go because our dinner ran late. In our child-centric society, parents miss, miss, miss gathering to worship because their children have ball games or because sometimes even because their children have homework to do or because their children are too tired to go back to church. Some adults are no better and miss church because there's a football game on TV or because they have a family dinner. I encourage you sometime to look on uh, Sunday morning at 9.55 and take a look around the auditorium and see how, how full the pews are. And then when you get a chance, take a look around 10.20 again and see how full the pews are. I've talked to the guys that watch the, uh, the parking lot and help make sure that cars get where they need to go and have safety in the parking lot. And they say, Pastor, you can't believe how many cars come in between 10 o'clock and 10.20. These wise men risked their lives and sacrificed and let nothing stop them from getting to worship Jesus because Jesus was their treasure. And what we treasure gets our focus, gets our time, gets our money, just as we heard in our testimonies earlier tonight. This past Monday was uh, my wife Chris's birthday, and so I tried to be a good husband, buy her some lunch uh, when she was teaching because it uh, can be difficult when you're a teacher to, to get your lunch and the place she wanted a sandwich from was busy, and so I got back here late. So she, I missed her lunch break. So I offered to take her kids to recess so she could eat her lunch. And kids are funny, but the one thing I, I was reminded of is that children are so observant that they don't miss a thing. I needed to help a couple, you know, zip up their jackets and, and uh, a couple other things. And I had little cuts on my thumb at the time. And, and I had, in a little 30-minute period, I had at least six children ask me, like, what happened to your thumb? Because they don't miss anything. What are your children or your grandchildren or your nieces or your nephews learning about what you treasure? Do they see someone who so values worshiping Jesus that will sacrifice their money and their time for him? Or do they see someone who has other treasures that are more important? Because we live in a world of competing treasures, don't we? There's all kinds of other treasures competing for our hearts and our minds. In fact, don't tell your children that the treasure of being a star athlete isn't satisfying, because it is. Don't tell your children that having a powerful position at a job or lots of money or a nice car or a nice house doesn't provide satisfaction, because we know it does. However, it's inferior, it's short-lived, and empty. But those competing treasures do give satisfaction. But the wise men didn't let anything stop them from getting to worship Jesus. We see in Matthew chapter 2 how much the wise men treasured Jesus. But you know, we see this same principle of treasuring throughout the book of Matthew. We see it again in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, where it says... Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Three times in this passage, Jesus mentions our treasures. There are treasures on earth, but he says there are temporary. So lay up treasures in heaven because they're eternal. And then Jesus gives us this great treasure principle in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
So we learn our heart follows our treasure. And most of us here tonight would claim Jesus is our greatest treasure. But if we're honest, we have many competing treasures that compete with Jesus for our hearts every day. It could be our children. It could be the power and position we get at work. It could be our bank or our retirement accounts. It could be as silly as a sports team or even as serious as our spouse. But this is a great principle for us to learn and to teach our children. One of the easiest ways to test our treasures, to test our hearts. What are we most passionate about? What is it that we think we can't live without? What, what is it that we turn to when something happens and we need comfort and we need strength? We also see this treasure mentioned in Matthew 12, verse 35. Jesus teaches called a tree is known by its fruit. And that simply says, a good person out of his good treasure bring forth, brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. The principle in this passage parallels what we just read in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. And it's another great principle to teach our children. When we see people behaving badly or behaving godly, you can explain where that behavior comes from. Their behavior comes from the treasure that is inside their heart. And again, we see Matthew, uh, treasure mentioned in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, the parable of the hidden treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In Bible times we know they didn't have banks with safety deposit boxes to keep their valuables safe. And so what they would commonly do if they were going to be gone on a trip, they would go in the field and they would find a spot they would bury their valuables. And then... Sometimes if they had to go away on a trip and they didn't return or they went away on, for war and they didn't return, those valuables would be left hidden in the ground. In this parable, a man finds hidden treasure and it says, in his joy he sells everything he owned and buys the field so that he might have that treasure. And that treasure, Jesus says, is the kingdom of heaven. And in this parable, the man's considered being able to be part of the kingdom of heaven, so valuable, it was worth selling everything he owned in order to get it. Now, in contrast to this parable, we have the true story about a man who's known in the Synoptic Gospels as the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, verses 16 through 22. And it says in verse 21, Jesus said to this man, I'm sorry, let's go back to verse 20. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, after he asked Jesus what he had to do to inherit eternal life, the young man said, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? And verse 21 says, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. There's a lot that can be said about this passage. But money and wealth can easily become our treasure. But please note that wealth and money comes with great danger. Say, danger? What's dangerous about having money? Why is being wealthy so dangerous? Well, I don't know how many of you can relate to this, but being the, the parent of a, a recent college grad, you know, my mind went to, oh, I hope he can find a job he can pay the bills so he doesn't have to come move back home. No. 
I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but I remember even having breakfast with a friend and listening to him as he was really concerned that his child would get a job that paid well and, and in his mind had to get a pension because then they would be okay and he wouldn't have to worry about them making it in life. And that's part of money's danger. It, it can become our security, right? We can end up checking on how our retirement funds are doing more often than we do end up reading the Bible and praying. And when we have a problem, we're quick to check out well, how much money do we have in the bank before we even check with God. So right after the story of the rich young ruler, Jesus says in Matthew 19, verses 23 and 24, and Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the common reaction for many of us, just like the disciples, who started to wonder and ask Jesus in verse 25, well, if a rich person can't make it to heaven, who can be saved then? See, during Bible times, it was thought that wealth was a sign of God's blessing and that poverty was a sign of God's curse. And it's easy for people today to think the same thing and allow wealth to be our greatest treasure. Don't, don't misunderstand. The Bible has good things to say about working hard, about making money, about being a good steward. And there were many wealthy believers in the Bible, Abraham, David, and Solomon, and, and, and others. However, the Bible gives us great warnings about being wealthy. It's a well-studied fact that the more people make, the less they, the, I'm sorry, the more people make, the more they spend. And it's equally true that the more people make, the smaller percentage they give to charities and to churches. So if you give just 10% and you make $1,000 a month, got my math right, that's $100 a month. However, if you make $20,000 a month, now that 10% is $2,000 a month. And for most wealthy Americans, the greater their income, the smaller percentage they give away. Why is that? Because wealth can lie to our hearts. How does that happen? Well, one way is that as your income increases, usually in small ways you increase your expenses. Things you couldn't afford before, now you can. Vacations you couldn't afford to go on before, now you can. Cars you couldn't afford, subscriptions you couldn't afford, those phones you couldn't afford, now you can. What, what does that feel like? Well, you might, you might make five times as much as you used to make, but because you've increased your spending, you feel like you're barely paying your bills. I recently read an article from the Washington Post that talked about Americans and how wealthy they are compared to how wealthy they feel in relationship to the rest of the world. The title is, Americans Profoundly Underestimate How Rich They Are Compared to the Rest of the World. And this is what it said. The average U.S. resident estimated that the global median individual income is about 20000 a year. That's what people thought people, the average income is around the world. In fact, the real answer is about a tenth of that figure, roughly $2,100 a year. Similarly, Americans typically place themselves in the top 37% of the world's income distribution. However, the vast majority of U.S. residents rank comfortably in the top 10% of the wealthiest people in the world. Did you catch that? The vast majority of U.S. residents rank comfortably 
in the top 10% of the wealthiest people in the world. The more you have, the more you spend, and the less you feel you have, and you think that you need even more. But not only does our wealth lie to our hearts, it can also give us a sense of false security. If, like many of us do, we have savings accounts and retirement accounts, few, few things can make you feel like you can handle anything that might come your way more than having some money in the bank. If you're confident that if you lost your job, you'd still be okay for several months because I have what well, I have. I figured out these are my monthly expenses and I have six months of savings in the bank. Well, I'm, I'm okay if I lose my job. We'll be okay for six months. And that can easily give us a false sense of security. Because although we can handle unexpected expenses like having to replace your roof or replace your car or furnace, you feel secure. And I'm not downplaying those things. You should do that. You should have savings. It's good to have savings and prepare for retirement, but don't find your security in them. Don't let them become your treasure. Because it's, although it's good to have that, but that's not going to help you when you have to handle the diagnosis of cancer or the death of a parent or the death of a spouse or a life-changing illness. But Jesus can. He should be our greatest treasure, our greatest source of strength and security. One last danger about wealth. Being wealthy, having money can make us proud. See, if you've been able to make a lot of money and acquire wealth, what does that mean? It generally means that you're smart about making money and acquiring wealth. But all too often, that's not what our, health, our heart will tell us. Our heart will tell us that not that we're smart about making money, but that we're just plain smart. And if we've done better than others we know and acquired more wealth than them, our heart will tell us not that we've done better than them, but that, in fact, we are better than them. Money and wealth are and can be very, very dangerous. So let me ask you, have you taken a treasure test? Have you had your heart checked? What is it telling you? Did it confirm that you are spiritually healthy because Jesus is your greatest treasure? He is the first person you go to when, when trouble arises. That you let nothing stop you from spending time in his word. You don't let anything come between you and worshiping with other believers. That Jesus is the person that you can't live without. With this Christmas, this new year, like the wise men, let's make Jesus our greatest treasure. And let's demonstrate to our children, to our neighbors, our co-workers, our grandchildren, how the, the absolute infinite worth of Jesus to us. Let's pray and ask God to help us do just that. Father, we are quick to admit our sinfulness and how easy it is to allow the things of this world and even the people that you brought into our lives to become our treasure. God, we pray that even as we come into this 
Advent season and we look forward to celebrating the birth of your son, Jesus, that that would only reinforce just how wonderfully, incredibly valuable you are. And that we would make decisions and make changes in our lives that would demonstrate to our children, our family, our neighbors, just how important you are to us. So that as a result, when they look at our lives, our lives might push them to want to know you better. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.